Welcome to episode 13 of Attorneys Are Human 2, Every Day is a Saturday in Florida, featuring Syracuse University basketball legend, Dale Shackelford. I'm your host, Steve Wallace. I'm joined by our co-host, Selena Music. We're both of the Wallace Law Group. Let's get right to it. Okay, welcome everyone to this episode of Attorneys Are Human 2. We have our a special guest today. We have Syracuse Orange Man legend, Dale Shackelford. Hi, Dale. Hi, Dale. So can you tell us when, wh- at what age you started playing basketball? Well, I was probably about eight years old. And a little kid, you know, in the playgrounds, uh, playing in the waiting pool and in the sandbox and just, uh, you know, having fun as a little kid. And uh, my older brothers were playing basketball and they needed a 10th man. So I was the 10th man. Okay, excellent. And so you, were you, at a, at a young age, you were always playing with older kids? Yeah, I've always played with older kids. I've got two older brothers that played basketball. And uh, you know, because I grew so fast from, from my age and a kid my age, you know, they always dragged me along with them uh, you know, to play with them. Okay, excellent. And, and you grew up in upstate New York, is that correct? Yeah, I'm actually originally from Utica, New York. Uh, born and raised there. Uh, I went to a uh, private uh, elementary school, St. Joseph, St. Patrick's. And that's the you know story where everything really started. That because um, I always played organized basketball at our uh, neighborhood center at the boys' club and YMCA. And we finally, my seventh grade year, we had a basketball team at the school. And between seventh grade, we we won one game out of sixteen. Between seventh and eighth grade, I went from about five eight. To wow. Oh my God. Uh, so eighth grade, I'm six one, and you know I had a great basketball coach, Bob Constantine. And he says you're the biggest guy on the court. He says all I want you to do is let your other teammates shoot, and you get the offensive. I'm six five. Oh wow! I have a nephew that's six five. Okay, how old is he? He's seventeen, about to be eighteen. Okay, so hopefully he's got a little more time to grow. <laughs> but he doesn't play basketball. Well, it's never too late to start. <laughs> That's spoken like a true coach, right, Dale? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, so I was averaging 36 points a game. This is where my love and my story of basketball really took flight. I'm averaging 36 points a game. At halftime of one of our games, I had four points. And my dad walks in the locker room. He says, uh, son, get dressed. We're going home. I said, dad, it's only halftime. He says, I don't care what it is. He says, you're an embarrassment to your mother and everybody that's out there watching you play. And the coach intervenes and says, uh, Mr. Shagapur, it's only halftime. He goes, I don't care. He goes, you coach my son. He goes, I discipline my son. So he made me get dressed, walk out through the gym, outside in a snowstorm. And he stopped me and he says, if you can play 100%, give 100% effort every time you go out there and play, you can play and I'm crying, and I'm saying, yes, I'm doing, you know, play as hard as I can all the time. So back then, we only played six-minute quarters. Mm. And I had four points at halftime. I finished the game at 48 and won by 11. So that's that was my mentality from that point on, is that I've got to give a effort or nothing at all. So yeah, that that's what that's a very well-known story about you online, is you scored 44 points and a half. And that, was that the game you're talking about? Yes, sir. Yeah. Oh, wow. And so this was in eighth grade, correct? Eighth grade, yeah. I was uh, 14 years old. Wow. 
Wow. So you, you outscored the whole the other team by yourself? That's right. We ended up winning by 11. So uh, Okay, excellent. And so, and then after eighth grade, did a bunch of different high schools want recruit you and want you to come to their their school, or did you are you already set to go to one high school? Well, it was a tough situation because my playoffs of my uh, eighth grade year, my father passed away. Oh, I'm so sorry. And uh, you know, my grammar school coach became my mentor, and they talked me into going to Notre Dame High School, which is uh, a private school in Utica. And, uh, you know, I wanted to go to school with my brothers and sisters. We went, you know, you know, 650 boys at the time. It was all-boys school. And she said, you know, go there. See, I like it. If you don't like it, you can transfer. And from the first day I stepped in the school, they treated me like a, uh, I was one of the brothers and best friends that, you know, they've ever had. It was like one big family with uh, 650 boys. That's excellent. Wow. And so during your high school days, you, you played you because I, I played basketball in the Syracuse area also, so I'm pretty familiar with Utica Notre Dame. They've always been a pretty good school, basketball school. How, how was your team during those years? We had great teams. Uh, I was fortunate enough my freshman year, I started out on JVs, and then the last five games of the season, I played varsity. And uh, then my sophomore year, I, we had a great group of guys, um, you know, and uh, we, you know, we played you know, powerhouse teams throughout the state. So we had a lot of experience and stuff. And actually, our league was called the COO League. And by some year, I ended up being the uh, leading scorer in the, in the conference. We've always had very good teams. I won the second round or, or whatever. And then my senior year, uh, we played DeMatha from Maryland. And they were number three in the country at the time. And we beat them by 13. So, you know, we played great competition. Uh, we've always had good teams. Our, you know, the guys that we had on that team, you know, we played well together. It was no big thing about, you know, who's scoring points or who's doing what because one of my better games in high school was I had four points, 28 rebounds, and 19 assists. And, wow. You know, uh, another guy on our team scored 45 points and he held the scoring record for about uh, 30 years. So, you know, those types of games and those types of teams that I played on, uh, you know. Excellent. And so at that point, I assumed that you were getting interest from a variety of different Division I colleges. I had about 250 scholarship offers to college, and I, I took probably about four visits. And I got tired of it because it was almost every weekend, and, you know, it was taking me away from my family and my friends and that. So uh, I decided early on that uh, my family can come watch me play. My, my friends can come watch me play. So that was one of the major factors in going to Syracuse. Other than that, a lot of the coaches that I talked to uh, back then, I didn't believe them, uh, you know, that I was one player in the Asian one national championship. So, you know, that really geared me towards Syracuse because, you know, I'll earn my playing time. So that was great. You know, I was very fortunate at Syracuse. My freshman year, I played center. My sophomore year, I played small forward. My junior year, I played one and two guard. And my senior year, I played power forward one guard. So everything and that was because of the coaching I had uh, growing up in uh, you know, grammar school and high school. You played before there was a three-point line, correct? Yes. And even, even without the three-point line, the scoring was pretty high. We, we scored a lot. We scored a lot. I mean, we averaged probably about 96, 90, but three years at Syracuse. Uh, you know, we had we had great players. Uh, my my freshman year was the year that uh, after Syracuse went to the Final Four in '75, and uh, you know I came in and uh, you know they lost uh, that um, 
I would have had to buy for time against. And we were fortunate enough that, you know, when I came to Syracuse, the damper wasn't too high on the, you know, the two guys we had at center, Ernie Siebert and Bobby Parker. So it was a choice of me and Marty Burns that was going to play center. So Marty was a sophomore, I was a freshman, so he, got, he chose to play uh, small forward and I ended up having to play center. So, I mean, it went well. And then my sophomore year, we got Roosevelt Boyd. He's a seven-footer, so that was a, a big load off my back to have him in the middle instead of me in the so what was your go-to scoring move? Because you were a scorer throughout your career. So what was your breakdown move? That was the difference between us and we had scorers. We didn't have a lot of you know great outside shooters. And everybody wants to be a shooter. And to be totally honest with you, a lot of my points came off of uh, you know steals, rebounds, running on fast breaks, you know, and, and that sort of. You know, I can put the ball on the floor uh, pretty well you know, to get to the rim and everything, but. You know, mostly my points came from the you know, steals and offensive rebounds. That's great. So the hustle play, you're, you you fill up the stat sheet. Well, yeah, and uh, taking advantage of uh, teams keen on other guys that you know gave me the opportunity to, to you know be free and get those opportunities. Excellent, Selena, You want to ask? Want to ask? Yeah, I wanted to know how do you feel about? And I've asked this. I asked this to the coach last time. But how do you feel about college players getting paid and uh, while they while they play well it's, it's, it's a tough situation you know my freshman year in syracuse we used to get 15 dollars a month laundry money as they call it and after two months into the school year so september october we got 15 dollars check to do our laundry with and to get our toiletries with and things like that and then the ncaa stepped in and said we cannot be treated any different than any other student so they took that $15 away from us. And, you know, I come from a home that, uh, you know, had a single mom who worked hard and, uh, you know, five siblings and, and that. And, you know, we'd have that type of money to put in your pocket and, you know, go do whatever you want. And, uh, you know, sometimes it was tough, uh, you know, trying to make it to the dining hall after practice. And, you know, the dining hall closes at 6.45. And, you know, we finish practice at uh, 6.30, 6.45 sometimes. So, you, you know, you're worried about getting something to eat or, you know, going home for the holidays and stuff, you know, we're always stuck on campus and everything. The players are getting paid now and whatever. I personally feel that, you know, players deserve something. You know, with all the time you put in at practicing and you have to go to class and you have to study on the road and things like that, you know, it's like a full-time job. And your social life and your personal life is just basically gone out the window, uh, you know, when you are still that way. So I think they should get something. I'm not saying how much they should get or what they should get. I think across the board it should be equal because I'm a firm believer that if you're the number one player, well, without that number 15 or 16 player, you have nobody to practice against to become a better player. So I think everybody should be paid equally across the board. Not to mention all the money that universities make off of these players. Well, and, and people don't understand that the athletic department pays the university for the student athletes to attend classes and stuff. So in a way, you earn that money and then that's given to you through your education. But as far as the personal time and the, the time that you put in, I think that should be subsidized also. And that's where I say, you know, I don't know how much they should get or how much people deserve to get, but they should get something. What about all of the money that the university makes through the apparel, like for example, if you're, what what was your number in school? Oh, 33. 
So let's say they're selling a lot of Syracuse 33 uniforms. You're not getting any of that money. I think it would, in my opinion, I think it's fair because people are buying 33 Syracuse jerseys because of Dale Shackelford. And you're not seeing any of that money. You should get at least some of it. And I, some of the uh, legislation going around and some, you know, a big push where athletes can share in some of that revenue. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, that, that would be great. But uh, me personally, you know, they give me two free tickets for every home game. So that, I guess that takes care of. Uh... Well, that's well, worth about... so At least as an alum, you get two free tickets to every home game. Yes. And then oh, wow. sometimes, so, you know, they compensate us with tickets and things like that. Uh, but about- I, I think they deserve something. You know, it was different when we played. You know, we did a lot of traveling and stuff. But, um, you know, nowadays, you know, these guys, it's like a full-time job for them. And they're constantly in the gym. They're constantly, uh, they're constantly you know, getting treatment for one reason or another. And uh, we didn't have that back when, uh, you know, I was in school. So, um, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, I do feel that those guys deserve something, the ones that are playing now in this era. And, you know, guys like myself were in it to take it, but uh, the rules do change and the game changes. Well, what about players using social media to make money? I mean, they're not necessarily going to the university, but they have these social media pages, and it's very easy to make money off of social media because you get people who want to market through your site and, you know, depending on the amount of followers. I don't see anything wrong with, a player who's a very good player using his social media platform to make some type of income, but apparently the universities consider that a problem. Well, I mean, the NCAA has it where a student athlete cannot work while they're attending school. So in a situation where a family can't afford to take care of their child, uh, they should have a way to make money without actually having to do some type of physical labor. And I think that you know, with them doing the social media, the, you know, that should be open and, and they should be free to do whatever they like as far as uh, to go out and do a physical job. But, you know, saying, you know, I go to the grocery store and be a bad, I, I would, I understand why they don't want you to do that. They don't want you to put yourself out in the, in the limelight or in the public like that. But as far as the social media is concerned, you know, saying that they should be able to. And, you know, some players can be smart about it and there's ways around it. Uh, you know, the way social media is today, uh, you know, I, I, can, I can put it in somebody else's name. And, uh, and uh, you know, the university has got to follow the NCAA rules as long as the NCAA is governing uh, the college sports. Okay, great. So in college, who would you say the toughest person you guarded on the opposing Every, Everyone. Everyone. I learned a long time ago that anyone is capable of scoring on anyone in any given day, any team. So my, my biggest thing right now is I tell kids all the time is that you have to pay attention to the scouting reports. Your coaches work their tails off 24-7 to prepare you for a game. And don't go out there thinking that because a team lost by 50 against someone else that you're going to go out there and beat them by 50 because you beat that team by 50. You still have to go out and put the effort forth and stuff. You know, I played against some great players like Magic Johnson. Uh, I played against some, um, Eddie Jordan. Uh, James Bailey, Bernard King, or any Grunfeld, you know, we played against good players. And every player can go out and beat you. I mean, uh, we, I didn't know anything about uh, Jim Paxton until he kicked my butt for 35 points uh, when we played Dayton. So, you know, those things like that, you have to pay attention to your scouting reports and you have to understand that on any given day, you know, somebody can have a great game against you. So you got to prepare. 
Was Irvin Johnson magic when you played against him? He was just starting to become magic, but we had a player named Marty Burns that took the wand from him on that given night. There you go. Yeah, he played in the NBA for a while, right, Marty Burns? <laughs> okay, great. He played with the Lakers with magic. For, uh, oh, wow. They won the uh, World Championship. Okay, wow. great. So after college, uh, you played professional overseas. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and let us know which country you enjoyed the best? Because I know generally when you play overseas, you go to a variety of different countries in Europe and around the world. Well, I got drafted by uh, Phoenix Suns out of college uh, and I got cut in out of rookie camp. I had a travel boss with Portland. Um, I had come from both of those teams and then I had a, a trial with the home globe job. I ended up getting cut from them after you know, three weeks in, in their camp and everything. So at the time, I decided, well, I guess, you know, my basketball career is over. Can I ask you a question about the Harlem Globetrotters? Yes. Did, did you learn, like, all the different tricks that they do in practice? Or <laughs> I'm just always curious about that. My son loves watching the Harlem Globetrotters on YouTube, so he's fascinated with it. Or is that like a specialty team that does tricks? Yeah, they, they've got this, certain guys that do all those tricks, and they've got you know, guys like me that just go out and play regular basketball. I yeah. knew they were a separate team. Yeah. But isn't it true that the team that they isn't it true the team that they play against they know they're going to lose? Well, I don't I don't know because I, I I never got that far. Okay. But over the years in the sand. Got it. Okay, sorry to interrupt. So then you. So That's fine. Um, I got a job working for uh, Kemper Insurance in the marketing department. Mm -hmm. So I, I was with them for about a year, and I, I went from uh, 215 pounds to 250. Uh, you know, this isn't for me. I need to do something else. So at the time, uh, Brenda Malone was the assistant coach at Syracuse, and that was a year that uh, Marty had Eddie Moss, Chris Drebko, those guys were graduating. So they had a free agent tryout camp. That, uh, so I got invited to that workout with them to get placed in Europe and South America and that. So... Uh, long story short, I went to, you know, that tryouts and everything, and nothing happened. Nobody talked to me. And Coach Malone came up to me and he says, um, did anybody talk to you? And I said, no, nobody said a word to me. He goes, all right, he goes, you, you, do you want to play some word? I said, yes. He says, all right, I'll take care of it. So I went home on, uh, you know, that Sunday. Tuesday, I get a phone call from uh, an agent, uh, Ronaldo Paradise. He said, would you like to play in Chile? I said, sure, I just want to play anywhere. He goes, Okay. So what ended up happening is that I agreed to go to Chile, but then I got an offer to go to Italy. So I ended up going to Italy for the one year, and the team Where was playing in Italy. I played in a town called Rieti. It was just um, north of uh, Rome. Okay, we're a little, bit in, a little bit in the hills. And after that season, I ended up uh, getting back in touch with uh, Coach Malone, and he says, "Okay, let me get you back with." Uh, we're all the paradise and see what he's got for us. So that's what I, so I ended up going to Chile for two years. I loved it there. Uh, my first season there, we won the championship. Halfway through my second season was when they started the revolution there, trying to overthrow the government, but they were shooting in the streets and everything. So I left early. And I said, you know, I can't get caught up in this. And, um, and, uh, and Bernie Fine says, well, they're looking for two guys to play in England. Uh, Marty had Lila Getter and they're flying now. He, uh, we went to England and played. And I ended up being in England for 10 years. And then my last two years, uh, I was a player coach uh, in a town called Worthing. But during that 10-year period, uh, I was able to tour uh, 
you know, a lot of Europe. Uh, a coach named Bob Hope, who coached the Birmingham Bullets, they, they guys on a touring team to Spain and Gibraltar at the end of the season. So I got to go there and then Belgium, uh, Austria. And they got, to, languages? Yeah, they got to a point where I actually finally had enough basketball. So in uh, 92, uh, you know, I hung my shoes up as a professional player and uh, I went back home and just played in a few rec leagues and worked and, you know, got involved in coaching a little bit. Good friend. He uh, was the athletic uh, director at Herkimer County Community College. And, uh, you know, he invited me to be the assistant coach of Herkimer uh, County's uh, basketball team. So I, that's where my actual coaching in the States started. Excellent. Are you a golfer? I try. And that's yeah, I try I, too, I, but not very well. <laughs> are you actively coaching? At the moment, I just... Uh, got offered to uh, be an assistant coach at uh, Cardinal Gibbons out of uh, Fort Lauderdale. And then also coach Roosevelt Gray. He has a traveling team uh, here in uh, in uh, Boca. And he's a good friend of uh, Coach Fine. And uh, he invited me to help his team out right now while I'm here over the summer. And uh, you know, we just traveled to Atlanta over the, over the weekend, and uh, the kids played two games. I, I have a fourth grade travel team in Boynton Beach that may want to assist your enlist your services. Oh, uh, anytime. Uh, just let me know. Because uh, you know. number eight, he's pretty good. On, on uh, <laughs> Dale, let me ask you: How do you feel about coaching during this pandemic? Well, I you know I I, I wear the mask, sanitizer all the time in my vehicle at the table. Uh, in the gym. I uh, try to be as safe as possible. I think that we need something to occupy our mind and our time. And, you know, if, if a disease or something is going to attack you or affect you, it doesn't matter what you do to try to prevent it, it's going to happen. I just think that everybody stays safe and, you know, follow protocol and do what you're supposed to do as far as your hygiene is concerned and you know, be in safety with the mask and everything. Uh, I think that you know, we'll have time enough to find a vaccine and uh, we can get back to some sort of normalcy. Okay, great. Well, Celine and I are going to ask you one more question each, and then we're going to go to the lightning round. So my question is, in one of the big debates that we have on this show, after watching The Last Dance, the question is, who's the GOAT, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Well, I'm not a big LeBron fan, so I'm going to go with Michael Jordan. Okay. See, I knew I would like you, Dale. <laughs> well, okay. I, I've seen I, I, I've seen Jordan over the years, and Jordan, with his work ethic and stuff, made his team better. Okay, my version of LeBron is LeBron is searching for players to make his team better instead of making the players around him that he already has better. And that was the difference that I... I draw the line between Michael Jordan and LeBron James. Let me give a follow-up question, though. So one difference, though, between the two of them is Michael Jordan would pretty much toe the line. He wouldn't make any controversial statements or comment anything related politically. The difference is LeBron James is pretty big proponent of social justice. So I'm just wondering what... But is he? Well, I'm going to stay out of that because I don't get involved in politics. And I'm trying to stay away from, you know, all this that's going on right now with uh, Black Lives Matter and things like that. Okay, my question is, what do you think of how the NBA is 
today as opposed to back when even I was younger, because I remember tiny little shorts. Well, the game's changed, and I think it's because of uh, the European influence on the game. Most European players are outside shooters. You know, everybody's a, a three-point shooter, and that goes from your bigs to the smalls. That's the way the American game has changed now is because every player now wants to shoot a three-point shot. And me personally, I think that was the worst thing they could ever put in the game was a three-point shot because that's all everybody wants to shoot. And, you know, even kids today, I tell them, if you can't shoot at least 33 to 35% from a three-point line, don't take that shot because it hurts your shooting percentage. But as soon as a child walks in the gym, so I, I think the game has lost, you know, the actual basis of the game as far as, you know, having that inside game where you got your power forward, you got your center, and you have a very good inside-outside game. Nowadays, you know, everything's on the perimeter and everybody just wants to run and go. And you know, there's no real defense in the game and there's no real structure on the offense. Okay. What, uh, and then just to add to that question, what do you think of women's basketball team and equal pay as well for the women's team? I mean, they are, I've watched and, and those girls could play. Well, I, I think that's where you know, the game should go. Uh, I think all young players you know, that want to be young players should watch the women in the game more because they're more fundamentally sound. They work harder on trying to do the easy things and the right things. It's not all about the fancy stuff. It's all about jumping as high as you can jump. You know, I tell kids now, you know, a shot goes up, you got to locate someone and box them out before you get the rebound. And I go back to Syracuse all the time right now. Syracuse gets out rebound a lot because they don't box out. And even though they play a 2-3 zone, they still have those box out principles that you have to at least make contact with somebody before you go get the rebound. Instead of turning and thinking you're going to use your athletic ability or your jumping ability you know, with, with passing, skills and everything like that, you know, that these kids should watch the women's game because you know, they do take the time to get the fundamentals right and then they put those fundamentals in the game situation and not get in the game and now all of a sudden they want to deviate from that and forget about the fundamentals. They put the fundamentals in play when they play the game. I actually have two more questions for you, just some of your comments <laughs> for my inquiry. So you, when you started, Coach Danforth was the coach at Syracuse, but, but Dayheim was your assistant and Bernie Fine. So you were there when you, you were one of the first players to play when Bayheim became head coach, correct? Yes. Uh, Bernie Fine uh, didn't become an assistant until Bayheim took over. Okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. So what is your, what is your funniest Jim Bayheim story you have for us? <laughs> Tony shared a couple funny ones with us when he was on. Well, I don't, uh, you, you know, everybody always asks me that. And you know, my biggest thing was, you know, I, I go to practice, I get my two and a half hours in, and then, you know, it, it excuse my expression or whatever, and I just get the heck out of it. You know, I try not to, you know, be around the coaches unless I absolutely had to. And we avoid those personal relationships because I never wanted to be in a situation where I'm going to get in a conversation with another player because I was buddy, buddy playing and they're not. But we did have an incident on the road. We beat Louisville at Louisville my sophomore year. And we had a little party in one of the hotel rooms. And one of the players took all the beer cans and lined them up from Coach Bayheim's door to the elevator. <laughs> so when he got up in the morning, he 
kicked all these beer cans over. So we get back, get up in the morning for breakfast before we head to and everybody's looking around at each other, and coach didn't say a word. We're on the plane, not a word. We're on the bus from the Syracuse airport to the field house, and all of a sudden, Bayheim, he goes, when we get to the field house, he goes, everybody dressed and not the bus. So we get into the field house, everybody's dressed, he says, all right, around. nobody said anything, he says, all right, we're going to run the stairs. So now we're running the stairs for 20 minutes and come down. He says, all right, who put the beer cans outside my door? Nobody answered. Back on the stairs again. Another 20 minutes we come down. He said, last time, he goes, who put the beer cans outside my door? He looks around. He goes, okay. He goes, Shaq, you can go home. He goes, everybody else up on the stairs. He goes, he says, I know if you put them there, you would set something by now, but you don't like to run. So I got to go home and everybody else kept running. So. That's a funny one. Okay, last question before the lightning round. So you lived in Utica most of your life. So yes. I'm just wondering, what would you say is your favorite part of Utica and your least favorite part of Utica? Well, my, my, my favorite part of Utica is you know, just the friendship that I have with uh, you know, the, the whole city and the community. It uh, doesn't matter what side of town I go on or where I'm at. You know, people always show me the love. Uh, the worst thing about Utica, I can say, is that um, we, we had a bad influx of building prisons in the area. And we tend to let a lot of the criminals out in the Utica area where now they've resettled there and now it's, you know, they're destroying the city. Mm -hmm. And the same things happening in Syracuse and a lot of places that, you know, we're, and I, I have no problem with anyone where they live or where they come from, but how you treat people and how you treat the city that you're living in and people that come out to, you know, and this is long before what's going on now that people are coming out destroying cities with the drugs and stuff like that. Because when I came home in England in 92, there were more unfamiliar faces in Utica than there were familiar faces. Mm -hmm. And there was more drugs around there than, you know, I seen in five drugstores. So, you know, and, and saying that, you know, we need to clean it up and we need to stay strong in every city to where, you know, this is your home. Let's make sure that nobody else comes and destroys it. Okay, great. And so now you're a Florida resident. What made you, and you live, you live in Delray Beach, which is right near us. And what made, you, what made you decide to come down to Florida? Well, in Florida, every day is like a Saturday. The, weather, the weather's nice. I can just enjoy life. And, uh, you know, my significant other, Crystal, and I, uh, we've come down. We've been together three years, and we've probably come down to Florida probably maybe six or seven times during those three years. And about a month and a half ago, we were down here for two weeks, and we looked at each other when we were going home on that Sunday and we said, why don't we just move to Florida? And we got home Sunday night, packed all our things. I rented a U-Haul trailer. I hooked it up to the Escalade and Tuesday morning we were driving to Florida. And here we are. Well, we're happy smart, to have you. Smart man. And it's okay. Yes. Is it okay if I borrow Florida where every day is a Saturday? Yes. Okay, Selena, you want to take us home with the lightning round? Sure, sure. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a few questions and you're just going to answer them uh, without any thought, okay? Okay, so 
Sunshine or snow? Sunshine. Okay. Did you watch Game of Thrones? No. Oh, my goodness. Nobody watches Game of Thrones anymore. I don't okay. either, so. Okay. Top binge show you're watching right now? 911. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cheeseburgers or tacos? Oh, cheeseburgers, definitely. Okay. New York pizza or Chicago pizza? I, I love pizza. And I, I've got to say New York pizza because that's what I was born and raised on. That's right. You better stick to New York pizza. <laughs> okay, Android or Apple? Apple. Good man. All right. Well, thank you so much. Dale, if you want to promote, if you can let our listeners know again about the Willow Street Foundation and how they can donate to this great organization. Yes, you can go online, uh, www.willowstreet.org, and it'll give you all the prompts and uh, you know all the information on the, you know what our mission statement is, and it will show you the charities and the things that uh, you know we've done over the past fifteen years. And then Dale, also, if you could let our listeners know to look out for uh, you, you, you've previously been a broadcaster. If you want to tell it, ever, ever our listeners to look out for your show that's going to be upcoming. Yeah, Roosevelt Boy and myself, Orange Appeal, and it's on uh, Facebook right now. And uh, you know, we were covering mostly uh, you know Syracuse basketball, men's and women's. And uh, you know, I'm going to be running a show down here in Florida sometime soon. And at the moment, I'm looking for a venue to you know have live audience to come to and you know have a couple drinks and some food and you know we'll, we'll chit chat and we'll talk about uh, you know Syracuse's past games and upcoming games. Well we, we have some clients and some connections that may be interested so we'll talk to you offline about that. Okay. And thank you very much for having me on today. I really appreciate well, it. It's a pleasure and again we hope to see you soon. Okay thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Attorneys Are Human 2. Please subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast host. Please also leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we look forward to seeing you next time.